Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. Hey, everyone. I am excited to have Dominique Simmons on the line. Dominique is an applied research scientist with Dimensional Mechanics. Uh, How are you, Dominique? I'm doing great. Thank you. How about yourself? Doing very well. Very well. I wanted to start this conversation by talking a little bit about your background. You have a master's degree in cognitive psychology and psycholinguistics. And you have ended up doing work in artificial intelligence. Uh, tell us a little bit about your background and kind of your path to working in AI. So I, I'll start from the very beginning. Um, <laughs> <laughs> as a child, I was always fascinated by the brain. Okay. Um, I grew up as an only child and I found myself journaling when I wasn't with my other friends. I'd journal and Uh, make observations about, you know, what people are doing, um, you know, just what was going on in my environment. And what I was fascinated by what made them do the things that they did. And that carried on throughout school. And eventually in college, I, um, I had a great mentor who brought neuroscience into our curriculum. Okay. And I started, you know, tabling for Brain Awareness Week. I started, uh, you know, learning about the brain and uh, the circuits and, 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 you know, just how these processes come about. And so, again, that carried me through. Um, I, I knew that I wanted to do that in graduate school. And um, after becoming a, a lab manager, University of Illinois Cham- Urbana-Champaign, um, uh, being a postdoc intern at uh, UMass Amherst, um, I got a, a lot of exposure to different types of psychology. Um, anything from, you know, infant psychology, cognitive psychology, uh, psycholinguistics, um, music cognition—you name it. I was just very fascinated with all these aspects, and and you could see these parallels coming together as well. Hmm. Um, so, uh, in graduate school, I studied, uh, specifically multisensory perception, which is the influence of one sense over another Okay. and how senses interact. So I come from a school of thought where the brain is, uh, agnostic, if you will, to input. And, uh, once the input, you know, is, is processed then, you know, it becomes sound or uh, it becomes hearing or, you know, any one of these senses. But uh, the actual input is, 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 is just information. The brain likes getting information um, and, 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 you know, learning and processing. Um, And then at the, the uh, later stages, that's when it becomes, uh, what we know is is uh, senses, sensory input. Hmm. Okay. So, with that, that gave me a unique background. So, uh, I will say that <laughs> in graduate school, I got a little bit tired of the theories. You know, of course, it's uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's you know critical. It's a critical foundation for a lot of work. But I started to get you know to itch for 
applications of of these ideas. Right. You know, this idea of integrating senses. How can we how can we make this into a device? You know, what how can it help, you know, um non-hearing populations or populations that have uh sensory deficits. Mm. Um and so I I worked on um a project, a brain training project on hearing um veterans with hearing loss. And essentially it was a uh, a program, uh, like an auditory game, auditory, uh, video game okay. where, uh, they had to, to learn complex sounds and, in order to navigate through the game. Um, when the sound goes up, they had to jump, but they go, the sound goes down. They had to, you know, duck under something. Oh, interesting. And so, yeah. And so that was my first taste of the applied, um, aspect, you know, uh, of things of the, the applied world. And the goal and, of that was assessment or trying to uh, rebuild new neural pathways to improve their hearing or something else? It, so it was a little bit of both, but really the latter. Um, okay. Really trying to um, uh, re-strengthen those connections, those auditory connections okay. uh, through training them with with complex sounds. And so we build the complex sounds um, in MATLAB and other tools. And, uh, you know, we, at that point we were doing some initial testing, but it's gotten, gotten pretty far. It's gotten to the point where it's an, uh, an app. Oh, wow. Yeah. So that was part of my graduate work. And then, um, I ended up, so it's funny how I got into AI. It's a bit of a jump. So, um, still on that applied path, I ended up here at dimensional mechanics as a user experience researcher in, in uh, VR, that was the initial um, space that we were in. Okay, cr- creating uh, VR content and 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 uh, optimizing it. Oh, interesting. Yeah, and so that's uh, that's why. So I was trying to work on things like immersion, um, uh, in, enriching the user experience of someone in a, a VR environment. Um, what are the perceptual aspects that come into it, um, and how to build a, a better immersive uh, environment for the for users? Okay. And and al- and also you know avoiding things like um, uh, uncanny valley and uh, nausea and all all the the not so good stuff that goes with VR. But uh, eventually, an uncanny valley is what. Oh yes, uncanny I've heard the valley. Phrase, but I forget what what the phenomena is. Yeah, so it's when you see a character that is human-like but not quite there. Okay. Um, and usually you can tell in the eyes. Uh, that's usually a giveaway, and you start to get this um, un uh, uneasy feeling because you know you you see the human-like quality that could be there, but it's not quite human enough. Okay. Um, and that's a, a big issue with um, characters in, in VR and in virtual environments. So, um, but eventually we pivoted into the AI space. And so I've been using um, my background to build, help build in the cognitive components into our system, um, things like decision making and perception. Mm-hmm. And and memory as well. Uh, just out of curiosity, what drove the pivot from VR to AI? 
I, it was, uh, you know, business decision, but, um, I believe that we saw a bigger, um, opportunity, if you will, in AI, um, especially a general AI platform that we're working on, uh, VR that is, is, you know, is vast as well. And there are a lot of areas that you can go into, um, that people don't necessarily recognize. It's way more than the entertainment space. Right. But AI can, it affects almost every single field there is, mm-hmm. um, almost every single area of business. I, I was on a, a panel a few months ago and someone asked, you know, is there, is there any area that you can think of that hasn't been touched by AI? And there, you know, they, we tried to come up with one example, but <laughs> if it's not already, <laughs> it, it is going soon. to be affected. Right. Yeah. Huh. And so just uh, for context, uh, and I really want to dig into your, you know, how your background ties into your current work. But for context, you said that uh, at Dimensional Mechanics, you're working on a platform for did you say a general platform for AI or a platform for general AI? I thought I saw the latter uh, on the website or something or someplace. Yeah. So it's a general um, AI platform, uh, essentially a set of development tools for companies so that they can reduce their costs in uh, engineering costs in AI and, and machine learning. It's AI is very expensive to uh, produce mm-hmm. and you need quite a bit of manpower and, and especially, you know, you have, to, you have to have essentially, you know, experts uh, currently, but we are trying to uh, do away with that so that someone who is interested in AI um, or, you know, a company that maybe doesn't necessarily have AI and ML experts, they can still build models for, uh, to solve their, their problems. Okay. Got it. I thought I read uh, that you guys were going after the the AGI problem, artificial general intelligence. Um, but it sounds like it sounds more narrowly constrained than that. A little bit, yeah. I mean, we, <laughs> we're <laughs> we're definitely adding to that conversation um, and and adding to those efforts. We want to build general AI. But um, it actually, I uh, uh, should mention that we are currently in the media space. So, okay. you know, you have to narrow it down somewhat. <laughs> um, so we're currently working with companies to uh, build AI models for images, video, and text. Okay. And I imagine that the media applications lend themselves particularly well to your background and a, a cognitive approach to, you know, there are, there are clear cognitive elements to AI uh, with regards to media. Can you talk a little bit about how those intersect? Right. So with, let's say, you know, images and, and video, for example, I come from it. Uh, actually, actually, as a matter of fact, I'm working on a computer vision um, project with a local university and we try to find parallels between, you know, how uh, humans ingest or um, process, I guess, perceive media. That's the best way to put it. And how a system would do the same thing. And 
it's, you know, obviously there's, there are going to be vast differences between how a machine does it and how human does. And we're not trying to, um, make a one-to-one mapping, but there's a lot to be said. There, there's a lot of, there's a, there's a lot of information and there's a lot of inspiration and, and how a human, uh, perceives media and that we can apply to how a machine, um, perceives media. So for example, and, and, you know, in computer vision, you can think of it as, a like a multi multidisciplinary field Mm -hmm. because you're drawing from vision science, you're drawing from computer science, um, psychology, you know, cognitive science. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, you know, and part of that is looking at, you know, exactly, um, so, so part of the, the way that, uh, researchers create ground truth for, for computer vision experiments is Uh they look at human ratings. Um, they'll have, you know, humans view a set of, uh, videos, do eye tracking and whatnot, and then try to apply that, you know, that, that eye gaze data to the system at hand. So that can be built in. So, you know, in, in, by using those human ratings, you can build smarter systems. Uh, just to make sure I'm understanding all of what you're saying. Um, so we can envision a, a system where a, a labeling system where you've got uh, some humans that are trying to label uh, a set of images. And you're saying that in addition to just the label that they're, you know, that they may type in to you know, or a set of labels that they might may type in, you're also doing something like, you know, eye tracking with a camera or something like that to see where they're looking on the images. And that helps you to refine the training process. Right. There's a lot of, there's, there's a lot of rich information. Um, there can be from, from eye tracking studies in, you know, how humans, um, what are the, what does the eye gaze data look like? What, you know, one of my focuses is, uh, no pun intended, but an attention, user attention. Okay. And that when we take in an environment, when we're looking around there, uh-huh. it, there's tons and tons of stimuli. There's no way that we can process it all at once. And so with humans, the whole scene is not relevant at the same time. Right. It's going to be relevant in basically spotlights. So you can apply that with a system as well. Um, If you may want to enhance certain parts of images or video, um, but you may want to do it in a fashion where it's focusing on the the most relevant information in that scene. Uh, And so back to your grad school research on multimodal and and kind of this model of the brain where, where, you know, you have just a bunch of inputs and uh, you're processing them, you know, kind of as equals. Are there other examples of inputs or other examples of this, of the multiple modes that you're incorporating into your work today? Mm, not particularly currently, but I would like to see 
Um, and this is something that I'd like to implement later. And it's the, um, I guess, intersection or combination of audio and visual. Okay. Uh, I have seen some early work in this, but, you know, if, let's say, let's say you're watching a video and right. there's, there's likely going to be audio as well. And where you're focusing your attention um, is going to be not only influenced by the visuals, but also, and, and also by the audio, but the, what's critical is the combination of the, you know, space, spatiotemporal um, information. That's, that's something that's going to heavily influence um, where your attention is guided in a scene. Mm-hmm. And so I think there needs to be a lot more uh, research in that in that space. Um, you know, previously there's been a lot of studies on on this, but um, you know, there's been a lot of focus on the visual, obviously, right. and there's been a lot there's been some focus on the, the audio, but um, really where you're going to find fascinating uh, insights is the the combination what's going on spatially, what's going on temp- temporally, and that, that intersection. And practically speaking, how might you expect that to impact an AI project? So let's say you build a model to detect the tone of a commercial. Okay. Well, that's going to use both video um, the the visuals in the in throughout the commercial, and then also you know advertisers uh, put a lot of focus on the the auto auto auditory aspect as well. Um, the the you know the 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 mood of the 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 mood of the music right. um, going with you know what's going on in the scene. So with an AI system, if you're able to train it on the video and then train it on um, the the audio, and then you know, I can, I'm thinking of like a kind of a thought experiment right now. <laughs> yeah. So you can see if it can recognize the, the tone of the vid- video just solely through the visual and then see if how well it does with just the audio. But I bet you that when you combine both of them, you have both types of information mm. that will um, allow it to best categorize the um, the tone of the video. Got it. I mean, it sounds like the basic idea is just try to use all the information that you have to to make more accurate models. And uh, often it turns out that the information that you have comes in you know, multi multiple modes. Some of it is, some of it is audio, audio, some of it is video, um, you know, and there may be others as well. Right. Uh, that's yeah, exactly. If we, you know, the more information that we have available, the more information we can train our systems with. And that's how we as humans learn as well. For example, in the the education realm, you know, you have a um, video of a lecture, you have an audio of a lecture, but if you are 
not only, uh, you know, you're using both and, you know, the best is if you're actually in the classroom and immersed and you have um, both, both sensory streams coming in, the visuals and the auditory, you're going to have a better chance of, you know, remembering the content and, and being able to build off of that as well. Right, right. Now, a lot of your work uh, calls into question the the whole notion of, um, you know, biological plausibility for neural nets and the extent to which we should be trying to model neural nets and AI systems after human systems. And in fact, you wrote about this in a blog post uh, last year. Uh, what are your thoughts on, you know, this whole question? It's, it's debatable, uh, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> and depending on, you know, what your background is, uh, I've seen some hardcore computer scientists where they're like, uh, you don't need this plausibility. But since my, my background is very brain heavy, um, uh-huh. I definitely want to include that in the conversation. Say, hey, okay, well, um, to what extent do we need uh, to model these systems after the human brain? It does not need to be a one-on-one-to-one mapping. I do believe okay. that because with the brain, the human brain, and you know, a computer, the lower-level bits are very different. Um, there's some similarity there, um, with, with neurons firing and, um, the, the binary bits for computers, but it wouldn't be in our best interest. There are so many other things that we need to tackle right now. It wouldn't be in Mm -hmm. our best interest to try to make a one-to-one mapping. Um, but these systems, in my opinion, should be biologically inspired. So we can take concepts like modularity um, or 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 integrated systems, um, localization. We can take all of these aspects from neuroscience and cognitive science and apply them to building these models. And I personally try to keep that in mind um, when I'm uh, building various AI models. Now, I think of modularity and locality as computer science-y things, uh, as technical things. Can you talk about how those concepts express themselves biologically and how they've influenced the types of models you build? Sure. So with modularity, uh, it's the idea that the brain processes, um, there, there are different areas for different processes. Like there's a, um, an area for language, there's an area for, for motor, there's an area, um, for, you know, other, other types of processes and systems. Okay. So, and they're believed to be all encompassing, if you will, or, uh, you know, self-contained. Right. I'm not particularly from that school of thought. I think there's, there's, there's relevance in that in that school of thought, but there's also a lot of a ton of interconnectivity. Mm-hmm. So, and that's really you know it's it's literally all connected. And you know even if there's some localization, 
a particular area for language, that's going to influence the the visual processes. That's going to influence, you know, the the auditory processing. So it's, you know, in my opinion, it's really all about interconnectivity. Okay. But as far as building AI models, so this is kind of going back to um, the thought experiment experiment that I brought up. But you can think of it is, you know, when you're training these models, you can think about what kind of the, I guess you can think of it in terms of uh, sensory input and, and separate streams or combined streams. So you can, you know, feed in audio, you can feed in video, and then you can feed in the, the combination of that. Okay. And you can think of that as, as the, the interconnectivity equ- equivalent, if you will. Mm. So this reminds me of some conversations I've had recently about folks working on deep neural nets and you know, there, this question comes up when they're trying to develop these complex deep neural networks, whether they, you know, whether they're ultimately developing this kind of this single model that takes in all the input and produces all of the outputs and it's kind of monolithic or whether they develop, you know, what looks more like a, an ensemble uh, in a sense of, you know, or a hierarchical uh, neural network model where they've, you know, they're taking in, you know, inputs and, and training the model to be able to determine, you know, some kind of higher level feature. Uh, and then they have, you know, many of these in parallel that they feed into kind of a higher level neural network to, you know, make the ultimate decision. And this may happen in, in several layers. Uh, it sounds like what you're saying is that that is ultimately more, you know, that's closer to what the brain is doing than the, you know, we think of the brain, I guess, and I guess uh, as lay people as a kind of this monolithic thing, but uh, you're saying that the, you know, in many ways it's kind of hierarchical. Is that, is that accurate? Yeah. I mean, if, and you can take a particular system, uh, the, the visual system, for example. So, you know, you get the early visual uh, sensory input, you know, it's really globs and shapes and shadows. And then as the input gets further up the stream to V3 and V4, then you start to actually make out a particular image, you know, a scene of a park or a beach or whatever it is. Hmm. So, yeah, it, go, it goes from sort of like a lower level abstract to the more. And, yeah, I mean, I agree with the idea that, you know, we have these lower level processes that are done first and then as they are being carried out and further processed, then you get things that are more fine, fine tuned, fine grained, if you will. Mm-hmm. You can also apply that to the motor system as well. Um, at first, you're, when your uh, motor system is still developing, you know, you're going to have clunky, uh, non coordinated movements, but then as you go further along and you, you can uh, fine tune them and fine train them, then you're able to write, you're able to type, um, you're able to do more fine tune movements. Are there 
a set of principles. Do you think that, you know, anyone working in this field should be, uh, should be thinking about as they're approaching, you know, developing AI systems, uh, with regard to, uh, you know, this whole issue of biological, uh, reference or plausibility? I would say, think in terms of, uh, you know, being dis, uh, interdisciplinary. There, there are a lot of areas that come together in AI. And I think in order to be, to, to develop successfully, you need to borrow from each of those. Um, like I said, you know, computer science, cognitive science, psychology, uh, all of these these different um, areas are going to get you are are going to help you build a better foundation as opposed to you know just focusing on the the um, computer science uh, theories or the you know cognitive science theories you you really need a combination of all of them. Are there a set of canonical references that folks should take a look at to dig into this area more? It wouldn't hurt to read up on the history of, of AI. I think it's a, a little known fact for some that it's actually been around since the fifties. Mm -hmm. um, a man named uh, Marvin Minsky was, you know, he's considered to be the, the father of AI I would I would read up on on him his work. I'd read up on Alan Turing. He mm -hmm. laid some of the foundational you know thinking in AI. Uh, yeah, I'd start there. <laughs> yeah, awesome, awesome. So maybe let's let's try to dig into um, you know some some more concrete things. Are there uh, specific applications of what? you guys are doing at dimensional mechanics that we can maybe talk about or what, you know, ways that you're helping customers develop AI applications with your platform. Yeah. So we have uh, a, a demo on our site, actually. I wish I could go into a, a lot more detail, but um, for now, I'll just mention the, the demo on the site and that's uh, an, an image ranking um, demo where you can upload a photo and it will uh, give it a score. Okay. And relative to the, the other, the existing photos on there, you can see them, you can scroll through them. Uh, there's a top, top 10 list. Okay. And it's scoring it from what perspective? The, so it's trying to give it the best ranking. So it, it's, it's, Using a lot of different metrics, can't really go into <laughs> the particulars, but, um, but is it is it trying to label the image or trying to rate its aesthetic quality or it's yeah, it's trying to rate its aesthetic quality. Okay, got it. So it's kind of a I don't know if anybody remembers the hot or not app. It's kind of the hot <laughs> or not app for for images. Right. We, um, <laughs> that's brought up and <laughs> has been brought up at our discussions. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's it, like I said, it's, um, rating the more aesthetic qualities of, of an image. Okay. And in what ways has the, your work around the cognitive psychology influenced, uh, how a system like that works? 
so part of this is going is going to go back to you know how how a person perceives an image and i'll just give you know very general examples so you know when we see an image we're taking in a lot of aspects um the shadows involved the lighting the angle of object uh-huh. the you know the the sort of the busyness or the, you know the, the the contrast um in involved so we're assessing all of those things um when we're an image and you could say that the system is doing something similar okay uh it, it, this is <laughs> this is kind of getting me into another space so one thing it's interesting so have you heard of the black box problem? Uh, generally, yes. Generally, I, I've okay. heard of a black box problem. I don't know if it's the same one that you're. When I think of the black box problem, I think of that uh, from uh, an AI explainability perspective. Right, right, and that's that's what I was going to get into. Okay. So for and and there's a parallel with humans as well. So mm-hmm. you know, we as researchers we present a set of stimuli and then you know, a person responds to those given stimuli, but what's exactly is going on in between is, uh, you know, it's debatable sometimes right. more, more times than not. And uh, with AI, uh, that's one of the things that we're trying to work on as well, not necessarily dimensional mechanics, but as a, as a field, yes. um, trying to demystify what's going on in between. Um, and there, there, I, I think that taking a, a good hard look at the, the training sets that you, and, and manipulating those in a way where, you know, you're feeding in sections at a time and you mm-hmm. know, that these have, this section has particular features. This one doesn't, that can possibly get at, at that question, but it's going to take a lot more, more work. Mm-hmm. And I think once we do that, it'll we'll be able to AI models will be that much more valuable because we'll be able to tweak as as necessary. Right, right. Uh, so going back to this demo application, you know, presumably you've trained, you developed some AI model uh, to rank these images, and you've trained it on lots of input data. Uh, did the multimodal training come into play in, in this case? Not in the current iteration, but that is something we would definitely want to explore okay. on how to make it smarter, if you will. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I can imagine, what- um, you know, if someone is, if someone is rating images on a, a numeric scale, but you also had a camera looking at them, observing them, then you, there's a ton of additional information like, you know, the creases in their eyes when they smile, you know, the smile, the eyes, you know, they could, that could perhaps uh, lend some additional insight as to whether this is a visually appealing image. Right. There's so many factors that, that come into play, you know, like I said, whether you have the right lighting, whether the, the expression on someone's face, um, what that's conveying there, there there's so many things. So 
uh, it would be great to further explore it. We've built it on a, uh, you know, particular set of uh, features, but mm-hmm. um, we would definitely like to expand that in the in the future. Mm-hmm. Are there any other uh, kind of applications or use cases that um, might be interesting to explore? Oh, there are tons. <laughs> it's really about <laughs> having time to explore them. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's it, it would so be many. great to get a sense for, you know, I think we, you've given us a sense thus far that having a, a cognitive psychology background can really lend insight into, you know, ways to think about, you know, your modeling and your training. Uh, and it would be great to, you know, then talk through some examples of, you know, how how that's kind of played out in kind of a customer scenario or a, you know, just a practical scenario so that folks can kind of see the line kind of go from beginning to end, if that makes sense. Okay. And I've, I've taught, yeah. And I've touched on this a little bit uh, earlier, but, you know, we're, we're looking at what, what we're looking at user interest and engagement Mm-hmm. Essentially, you know, when you see a scene, what is what's relevant to you? What what catches your attention? Right. And once various factors of that can can be identified, and what by the way, we're you know looking at both lower lower level features, things like um, line orientation and color, you know, very low level features that would grab your attention automatically, if you will. And then also higher level things like uh, emotion, things that uh, more, I guess there's a term top down um, attention, which is, is intentional based. You're, you're um, looking at something intentionally. Okay. um, Or, you know, goal oriented. So the, possible applications of that, that research. So I've, you know, talked about, uh, the advertising space, right? So, you know, for example, if advertisers can take this research and realize, okay, at the 32nd mark, this is where this particular, you know, location in the the scene, this is where people are going to be most engaged. Uh, most they feel like there's something most relevant in that in that uh, particular area. Mm-hmm. Well, that could be a great placement for product ad, mm-hmm. you know, or product logo. You can also get a sense of how long you're going to be able to sustain someone's how how much how much time someone's attention is going to be sustained. You right. know, in a world where <laughs> we're on our phones all the time, um, that that gap is shrinking. So, you know, with advertisers, it's that much more critical to find what's relevant and and get in there before uh, the user's uh, attention is lost. Okay. So then you're through this research, you're developing models that can that can look at. uh, Is it only static images or is it uh, video as well in this project? It's video as well. Okay. Actually, in this particular project, it's video. Oh, okay. So you're you're looking at you're basically training models to to model human attention and interest uh, on these videos, and then you can use that to help 
advertisers assess their work, for example. So as opposed to convening a panel or focus group to try to get a sense for whether an advertisement is effective, uh, you know, which is probably expensive and time consuming and maybe not even all that accurate. You can use these models to screen the, the advertisements to or for screen the advertisements for effectiveness. Is that the general idea? Right. And going off the accuracy point. So, you know, a lot of times in focus groups and whatnot, there, there's a, a verbal or written response, but a lot of times what we say is not necessarily reflecting what's going on internally. Right, right. And we try to get at that as well. Um, we currently use tools like uh, eye tracking and biometric sensors. So to get at the physiological responses to to the input, to the video input. Okay. And, and I, I forget if we cover this, but what do you call that, that phenomenon? Like I know a related idea is, I guess I, you call it attribution error or, uh, you know, issues around attribution. Meaning if you, if I look at an image, I can tell you, I like it, but I can't tell you necessarily why I like it. Is there a specific, is there specific terminology for, um, you know, the other side of this, which is, you know, I might not even, I might say I like it, but I might not really like it or vice versa. Right. Well, there, there are a lot of things that come into play, especially in an experimental setting. So there is experimenter bias. If, you know, the, in, there might be some influence of the experimenter. You have to be careful in the way that it's asked. If you are going to ask, sometimes the question in itself can be loaded and, and, and bias the response. Uh-huh. This is getting into another area, but uh, with eyewitness experiments, the way that you pose a question can definitely influence how the, the person will will respond. You can, you know, let's say there is um, an, an accident and, you know, you you throw in an object in the question, like uh, at the stop sign, blah, blah, blah. Well, the fact that you mentioned the stop sign, you know, even if there wasn't one there, the person may still agree and say, yeah, okay, I remember the stop sign. It's like, no, there wasn't even a stop sign there at that mm. particular scene. So as, so there's experimenter bias. There's So you mentioned attribution, but there, you also want to be seen in a particular way as well when you respond. Right. Um, so you have to keep that in mind. And we may not even be conscious of that. We just, we want to have, we want to produce positive responses. Mm -hmm. So, you know, to get away with all, get away at all that, I think a great measure is, is more something physiological that, you know, it doesn't get a chance to reach our thoughts. Mm. Mm -hmm. uh, interesting. Interesting. So beyond just this attribution issue and my ability to articulate there are, is a whole host of cognitive biases that can um that can distance someone's real perception of a an image or video from what they ultimately say in some kind of panel or focus group and thus being able to 
develop machine models that can, you know, not just rate the, the image or model the, you know, the a human reception of an image, but also maybe tell us a little bit, you know, as we kind of get further along with the, the black box issue, tell us what the issues are. You know, uh, this one may be too dark here or too contrasty there, that kind of thing. Right, right. To give, you know, possibly a more uh, objective measure, if, if you will. Mm-hmm. It sounded like you were wrapping up this research project. Um, what's on the horizon for you? Are there any areas that you're, any particular areas that you're looking forward to exploring further? Right now, I uh, am working on a learning more about the <clears throat> natural language processing space, okay. which I find really fascinating, um, especially with my psycholinguistics background. So for those who don't know, natural language processing um, is the ability for systems to take natural text, you know, um, anything as short as uh, words, phrases, and to documents full documents, novels even, and uh, be able to get insights out of that input data. Mm-hmm. Things like, I mean, you can get more technical things like frequency counts and, and whatnot, but you can figure out the the sentiment of a particular uh, text. You can figure out all kinds of things mm-hmm. that, you know, it would take a person hundreds and hundreds of hours to do right you can just load in all of these uh, documents and you know get a score for sentiment is it particularly positive or negative or all all kinds of uh, different insights and what uh what is piquing your curiosity around uh nlp and uh the application of psycholinguistics to to that field Maybe we can start with uh, what is psycholinguistics relative to, you know, traditional linguistics or other aspects of linguistics? Sure. So linguistics is, you know, the study of language, the parts of language, the structures and whatnot. And psycholinguistics, it's bringing in psychology into that. You know, you're, you're looking at things like the the way in which people say things, um, that term is prosody, the inflection in someone's in voice to convey certain messages. Okay. It's, you know, it's fascinating. You take one sentence, the man went to the park, the man went to the park, the man went to the park, you know, it, the mm-hmm. <laughs> you can say the exact same thing, but put different inflection on it and it has a completely different meaning. Hmm. Okay. There's, you know, the way, uh, the way in which we produce sentences and the, you know, syntactic structure hmm. and how that affects both the producer of the speech and then also the, you know, listener as well. Um, it also gets into, you know, co-articulation and these other mechanics of speech that what's co-articulation co-articulation is when it's the it's it, so it has to do with the flow of words when when we're speaking all of the words seem discrete but 
if you look at an audio form, uh, waveform, you'll notice that the sounds actually overlap. And so Ah, that's the co-articulation. Then you also get into the social aspects of speech. So when uh, two people are conversing and there's a a phenomenon that occurs called common ground, and that's when, um, you know, you, you start out using different terms, but over the course of the conversation, you start to use similar terms to each other, if not the same ones. Oh, interesting. Um, because you've built up, built up a rapport. Uh, gosh, I mean, there's, there's so much. There's, there's also this phenomenon where, um, you know, you're building up that common ground, but then you also take on a similar speaking style to that person. Um, mm-hmm. And that can also convey that you, you like that person. You can also, and that's called convergence. Okay. There's also divergence where maybe um, you're you're not a big fan of that person. You start uh, changing your speaking style, maybe un, you know unconsciously, but um, sp- changing your speaking style nevertheless. Hmm. Interesting. So when I think of natural language processing, I th- tend to think of applications that are, you know, either primarily textual or, um, you know, translation types of applications. Uh, but your, you know, just your little explanation of psycholinguistics and some, given some of the background we've talked about, you know, it, it strikes me that there's a ton of interesting work and exploration to go into, uh, what's, how do I articulate this? Well, maybe to, to articulate it by example, like when you create a neural network to recognize images, right? When, you know, we know a little bit about how those neural networks structure themselves and you've got kind of your edge detectors and your, you know, shading detectors and all those things that emerge. I wonder the extent to which uh, the concepts like prosody and other things, if you're training a neural network on speech samples, you know, if there are regions in the neural network that emerge that somehow reflect, you know, prosody, for example, or if that's a, if that's, you know, is that kind of the current frontier research? Yeah, that's definitely on the frontier of this uh, research in this particular space, Um, especially audio. You know, visual inputs have been fairly well studied in the AI space, but audio Mm -hmm. less much. Part of the issue is the shortage of data in that space. There, there There are quite a few open source video and image data sets, but uh-huh. not so much on the audio side. But going back to your point, yeah, I, I believe that what you would do is you would set, you know, prosody up as a feature. You'd set, I don't know, co-articulation or these other, you know, syntax. You'd, you'd start to set these up as individual features to train the mm-hmm. models. Meaning that you would you would have humans identify them somehow and label them, or you would have, how would you set up prosody, for example, as a feature? Mm. Uh, That's a good question. So initially it would likely have to be partially, at least partially supervised and you'd want to use 
some sort of existing ratings, so probably human ratings. And I can imagine, you know, you have a waveform and they, you know, listen to the speech snippet and mark places where, you know, um, goes high or goes low. Mm-hmm. Um, this this is also evident in the physical waveform as well. So uh, I could see that even being done without human ratings. But, you know, the system, it, you know, you feed it various waveforms and you feed it the, the sounds that go with it. It should be able to learn the parts where the wave, the, the audio goes up and then, you know, the, the times where the inflection goes down. Mm-hmm. But the tricky part would be associating that with a particular meaning. And that's where you'd probably need humans to come in. So, you know, humans would tag the particular sentence as, oh, this, the emphasis was on this or the emphasis was on that. Mm -hmm. And then once you have those list of different emphasis, you could um, train the model on that. And so ideally it would know when the inflection goes up, that's where the, the emphasized meaning is. Hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, I would imagine that traditional linguistics has a lot to offer in terms of, you know, just how to represent all of this stuff. Like it strikes me that, you know, just there's a representational challenge and, you know, if someone were to try to take this approach to, you know, building and training models, but, um, you know, certainly linguists have been, you know, representing prosody in some kind of way and, developing ways to map that to specific meanings. Is that correct? Yes, that is, that is uh, correct. And so it's definitely, definitely worth a look if someone is trying to um, train on audio uh, models to, you know, take a look at that space. That's why going back to uh, what I said about being, you know, uh, thinking multidisciplinary, Mm-hmm. Um, wouldn't maybe, you know, wouldn't maybe be obvious to go to the psycholinguistics, um, area, but it, it, like we've been, we've been saying, it can give you some great insight into how to train, uh, an audio model mm-hmm. and it'll give you more than just the, the surface characteristics of, um, a, a waveform or, or the audio It'll you'll be able to you know train it on um, meaningful inf- insights as well. His prosody is not something that you can necessarily you can see the inflections, but you can't necessarily see the meaning um, on the physical waveform. You need you need to add that insight, right? Uh, in addition, right? Hmm. Oh, this is a really really interesting space. Any any other thoughts before we wrap up? Um, no, I, I I think this is a great space as well. <laughs> uh, <laughs> what I I particularly appreciate about it is, like I said, the multidisciplinary aspect of it. Mm-hmm. We're building these very complex systems, and I just mean that as a as a field, right? Um, in addition to my company, but you know, we're yeah, we're building these complex. Uh, models that, you know, in some respect, reflect what's going on in a human brain. But we need to keep in mind that 
you know, the more complex they get, the the more information that we're going to need to seek out, and it's going to come from different places. Yeah, I uh, I can definitely see that. Um, I don't. I I think I've commented here on the podcast or, um, certainly on Twitter that if I wasn't so busy trying to figure out this machine learning and AI thing. Uh, linguistics would be high on my list of things to figure out. It's a, uh, it's a fascinating field and it's great that you get to uh, combine the two. Yeah, it is great. And one thing I did want to mention is that ideally, you know, the system would be language agnostic. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, we're really teaching it about human language, whatever uh, it could be French, Spanish, you know, English, whatever it is. Right. Um, which is very helpful. And it can be used in, like you alluded to, um, translation tools. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my favorite example of this, in fact, is from a conversation I did with uh, re- recently with Shubo Sengupta from Baidu Labs. And he talked about how uh, they were able to build a uh, English to Mandarin translator. I believe it was English to Mandarin translator before they even had any, you know, without having any Mandarin speakers, you know, on their staff, you know, just based on, you know, this, pro- this property that you're describing, the, the, the fact that a lot of the application of this is uh, language agnostic. Exactly. Because that's, yeah, it, it's not working on those particular nuances, if you will. It's, it's looking at it at a, with a more agnostic view. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Uh, well, before we go, what's the best way uh, folks want to connect with you or get in touch? Uh, what's the best way to do that? You can connect with Dimensional Mechanics on Twitter at DMINC underscore AI. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're also on Facebook and LinkedIn. You can connect with me personally at ArtSci, A-R-T-S-C-I. Uh, two with two zeros um, at Twitter. Okay. So at art size zero zero. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Dominique, thanks so much for being on the show. It was great chatting with you and looking forward to reconnecting soon. Thank you, Sam. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Take care. Bye. Bye. All right, everyone. That's our show for today. Once again, thanks so much for listening and for your continued support. Don't forget to share your favorite quote from this show via the show notes page, Twitter, or our Facebook page. And if you do, we'll be happy to send you one of our laptop stickers. If you're planning to attend the Future of Data Summit next week, please reach out and let me know to look out for you. The notes for this show will be up on twimlai.com slash talk slash 23 where you'll find links to Dominique and the various resources we mentioned in the show. Once again, thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.